0: Matthew 4 and verse 23 says that Jesus is going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Just a few verses later, we read the Sermon on the Mount. And I just can't help but see that what Matthew is pointing out is that the Sermon on the Mount is, in fact, the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus was preaching. We're going to be studying this sermon. We're going to be studying the gospel of... Of the kingdom, because it is the gospel. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. Not all of it looks like good news to us necessarily, but as we study it this month, going through our fall focus, we're going to be learning about the gospel of the kingdom. I know that some were shocked when they heard about our October Fest, and that's okay. That's right, Jimmy. We all make mistakes. I'm just glad that he doesn't listen to 1029 The Buzz or we might have heard about the Franklin Church of Christ Rocktoberfest. I was getting a little worried there. But we are having our fall focus. And what that means for those who are our guests, we're taking the entire month and focusing it on a particular topic. We've done prayer a couple years ago. We studied the family last year. This year, we're looking at the Gospel of the Kingdom. Studies in the Sermon on the Mount. That means that every lesson for the next month through the first Sunday in November is going to be focusing on the Sermon on the Mount. We've got some small group studies that are established, and I want to encourage you. We've only got, I checked, we've got 39 people signed up for those. Obviously, it's a volunteer thing. You don't have to be a part of our small groups. But think of how great it would be to have the accountability of other Christians being with you, studying these things and helping you apply all that we learn from the Sermon on the Mount in your life every week for the next five weeks. We're going to talk more about those groups at the close of our assembly today. And we have the book that we're going to be following along with. This has daily readings for us, five readings a week. If you're our guest, we encourage you, please take one of these with you. We have one per family, and we would like this to be our gift to you, to help you in your study of God's Word and applying the Sermon on the Mount to your life. Today, we take a look at the Sermon on the Mount, and we recognize that while it is the gospel of the kingdom, it's the gospel of the kingdom in concentrate. It contains the concentrated essence of what it means to be a disciple of Christ, to be a part of His kingdom. Like anything that's concentrated, we can add just a little bit of water, and it's going to take us all over the place. As we study the sermon in depth over the next month, we're going to be led all over the entire New Testament. It's going to talk about almost every major aspect of the Christian character and the life that we should have as the child of God. But before we look at all of that, I think that it's beneficial for us to take a look at the sermon in a nutshell. Let's just overview it, get a bird's eye view, and I'd like for us to notice four things that will kind of help us file away everything else that we learn throughout this month. Four things that will help us govern everything we study throughout the entire sermon on the Mount. Four keys that provide the main exhortation that Jesus had for us. Before we look at that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Glorious Father in heaven, we love you. And we're thankful that you have provided your Son for us, sending him to this earth to die for us. And we look to him every day. We pray that you would help us to Anchor our lives on Him and His life and His Word and the sacrifice that He has provided for us. We pray that You would be with us here, especially during this month of focus study on the Sermon on the Mount. Help us to be changed by it. To be strengthened, to be encouraged, to be rebuked when necessary and challenged, that there will be changed to be more like Your Son. Father, we praise You and we thank You that You've given us this opportunity to study Your Word to worship and honor You. And we pray that everything we do honors and glorifies You above all else. Not unto us, O Lord, be the glory, but unto You. And we thank You for loving us. We love You in return. Through Your Son we pray. Amen. Four keys to help us understand the sermon in a nutshell. As we look at every aspect of the sermon, keep these four things in mind and it will help us grasp everything that Jesus is trying to teach us. The very first thing that we need to recognize is that if we want stable lives, we must build them on the foundation of Jesus' words. The very last thing Jesus says in this sermon, in Matthew chapter 7, beginning at verse 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock, He gave his takeaway, his summation, his here's the point. And it was, if you want a stable life, do what I say. He provides a picture for us. And the way we need to picture this is there are two men that are building houses, and let's just picture that they're next door neighbors. They take a look at their lots, and one of them sees that it's nice and level, and he just starts to build his house. But the first one, the other fellow on my left... He sees this foundation is just sand. And so instead of getting out his bricks and his mortar, he gets out his shovel. And he starts digging away because he wants to get to the bedrock. And this is dreadful work. Can you just imagine in the Middle Eastern sun with your shovel out there, just digging shovelful by show, slow shovelful, getting this dirt and sand out of the way until you finally came to a bedrock. The fellow who just started building his house, he's about halfway done. The first fellow finally finds bedrock, clears it off, and gets it level, and starts building up his foundation to be level with the ground. About the time he gets that done, our other builder's finished. He's living in his house, sitting on the front porch in his rocking chair, drinking his iced tea, watching his neighbor slave away in the sun. And he just sits there with a smug grin. He just says, It's just not worth it. Look at all the work you're doing, and my house is going to look just as good as yours. Finally, both houses are completed and for a time it looks like that first fellow was just going overboard. What is the point? The houses look the same. They live the same. We as observers look on and for a time begin to wonder, was all that extra work really worth it? And then come the rainy season. And the house that was founded on the rock is fine, but the house that was just built on the dirt, that, that dirt and sand... Starts to be swept away by the torrential rain. And our builder, who just put it on the sand, he tries to get the sand and the dirt back up under the walls of his house to keep it level, but the rains are carrying it away far faster than he can keep it there. And one day he starts to notice some cracks. And so he tries to shovel some more dirt up in there. He calls Lowe's and says, I need another, I need some more dirt. And they get it out there, but he, he just can't get it under there fast enough. And it just starts to crumble. That's the picture that Jesus has for us. There's going to be a period of time where they all just look the same. Whether they listen to Jesus or not, Jesus says, the one who listens to me and does what I say, that one is like the fellow who dug down to the bedrock. And when the storms come, they'll survive. But the person who listens and just walks on and discards what I say, they're like the one on the sand. And for a time, everything will look the same. For a time, it'll look just like they're both just good, strong Christians, but then the storms will come. And did you notice that Jesus didn't say, those who listen to My words and do them won't face storms. What He said is, those who listen to My words and do them will withstand the storms. How many people do we know who appeared to remain faithful to the Lord until their parents died? Or until their spouse died? Or maybe their children died? How many do we know that appeared to remain faithful to the Lord until some tragedy happened and they lost their job? How many do we know appeared to be faithful until they left home and they went out into college and faced the onslaught of humanism and immorality? Up to a point, they looked just like every other Christian we knew, but then the storms hit and it started to erode the sandy foundation beneath their spiritual house. And it started to crumble and eventually fell. Why does that happen? Because they took the easy road. They didn't really found their lives upon Jesus Christ and His Word. They took the easy route and they founded their lives on the faith of their parents or of their spouse or, or because everything was going easy in their lives, but then when the storm hit, their foundation was weak. Jesus' words are our foundation. And when we build our lives on His Word, whatever happens, we can continue on. That's not saying life will be easy. That's not saying there won't be days where we're depressed or upset or discouraged. That's just saying that we'll be able to continue on because we'll be anchored. There's a lot of sand and a lot of dirt in this world. And we can take the easy route and base our lives on those things. We can just follow along with our culture. We can just follow along with our family. We can just follow along with whatever the preacher says. Or we can do the work, shovelful by slow shovelful, getting into the Word of Jesus Christ and base our lives on Him and we'll make it. Those are our choices. As we read this entire sermon, we need to understand Jesus is saying, this is the foundation. You build your life on this, no matter what the world says, a lot of the world's going to look at you and you're going to think you're crazy. You're going to say, my life is just as good as yours. But when the storms come, if we want to continue on, our lives have to be built on what we're studying in the sermon. If we want stable lives, they must be built upon the foundation of Jesus' word. The second key. As we take our bird's eye look at the Sermon on the Mount is if we want true blessing and happiness, then we have to walk in Jesus' way. The Sermon on the Mount begins with nine statements that we call the Beatitudes. Matthew 5 and verse 3: Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed For they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed. Does not have to be pronounced blessed, by the way. Blessed. Why? Because that's what they are. Blessed. This is not just an interesting way to start the sermon. Jesus is trying to demonstrate to us that the words He is about to speak are the vehicle by which God will bless us. The word translated blessed here is makarios, and a lot of folks want to translate it happy, which is a valid translation just to the word, I believe, but I don't think that really carries the meaning that Jesus has here. Happiness is something that can come just as a natural byproduct of our life. We might just be a happy person. Happiness might come just because of our whims and our fancies. Happiness might be the serendipitous byproduct of just having a decent day. But blessed only comes because we have received a blessing. Blessedness is not just an emotional feeling. Blessedness is the joy that is generated by receiving the favor of God. Happiness can come and go by what's going on in our day, but blessedness remains solid when we're walking in the way of God because our God and His blessings do not change. Blessed are the people who follow this. They're the ones that have true joy because they have the favor Now, interestingly, as we take a look at this list, we have a hard time today seeing these folks as blessed. They're the poverty in spirit. That word poor there is a word that means abject poverty. It originally came from the concept of to crouch because that's what you were doing when you were begging people for food. Poverty of spirit. Mourners. The gentle and meek. Those who are starving those who are compassionate and pure in heart and peacemakers and those who are persecuted, blessed. Jesus says we're blessed when that's who we are. Because these are the people who receive the favor of God doesn't mean every day is going to be wonderful. It doesn't mean life is going to be a walk through the park. But it does mean that these are the people who receive the favor of God. Jesus is going to go on and talk about people who control their temple, temper, who control their eyes, who stay married to the same person for all of their lives, who tell the truth no matter what it costs them, who stick by their word no matter how much it hurts, who love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. These are the ones that are blessed. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not because it's going to be always sunshine for them, but because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because they're the ones that are comforted. Because they're the ones that inherit the earth. Because they're the ones out of everybody else in the world who get satisfaction. Because they're the ones that receive mercy. Because they're the ones that see God. Because they're the ones that can be called children of God. Because they're the ones who are following in the footsteps of everyone else who has ever served God. They're blessed. And they can anchor their hope and their happiness and their joy in the true, sound blessings that come from God. Their happiness is not anchored on whether or not they get a raise. Their happiness is not anchored on whether or not they're sick or healthy. Their happiness is anchored in the fact that I am in God's kingdom. Their happiness is anchored in the fact that God has taken care of my sorrows. Their happiness is anchored in the fact that They can see God and be called children of God and be satisfied with righteousness from God. In 1776, Thomas Jefferson wrote that we're all created equal and given certain inalienable rights by our Creator, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Jefferson overstated the claim. God has not given us these rights, but God has blessed us with life and liberty and happiness when we are walking in Jesus' way. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, excuse me, verse 13, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. If we want life, liberty, and true happiness, Jesus is saying, walk this way. As we read this sermon, everything. As we're filing away everything about this sermon, keep in mind that this is what will provide true blessedness. We may not understand it. Some of it seems counterintuitive. We just can't understand how the person that turns the other cheek might be blessed. Or the person who loves and prays for their enemies might be blessed. But Jesus says, if you want blessedness, if you want true joy that can be anchored in God's favor, then live this way. The third key. If we want to enter the kingdom of heaven, our righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, Jesus provides what I believe is the theme statement for the entire sermon. And He says, Truly I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Do we want to enter the kingdom of heaven? Then our righteousness must surpass theirs. And in the sermon, he demonstrates three key areas where our righteousness must surpass theirs. And so we're going to take a little sidestep here and look at this one a little in depth very briefly. The very first thing we recognize is that we must seek God's glory. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, in Matthew 5 and verse 16, Jesus said, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. But in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1, we learn about the scribes and Pharisees. It says there, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. And then he gave illustrations in verse 2. So when you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. In verse 5, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. And in verse 16, whenever you fast... Don't put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they're fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. The glory they receive from men, that's all they're going to get. And that's what the scribes and Pharisees wanted to get. The glory of men. Jesus said, instead of sounding the trumpet before you when you give alms to those who are underprivileged, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When you pray, instead of standing on the street corners so that everybody can see what you're doing, you so go into your own inner closet and pray to your Father in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you're fasting, don't let everybody know. Look like it's just a normal day. Fix your hair. Put on your clothes. Look good. Don't look sick. And don't let anybody know. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. It's all about giving God the glory and not at all about giving us the glory. The second key is start with the heart. When we take a look at the biggest section of the Sermon on the Mount in five, chapter 5 verse 21 down through verse 48, one of the things we see repeatedly over and over again is the issue with the heart. In verse 21 we find out that the Pharisees, didn't, you know their idea was, well, said, don't commit murder. But Jesus said, don't hate. Don't be angry with your brother. Don't call him names. Start with the heart. A little bit later, Jesus said, they're going to tell you don't commit adultery. They didn't have a problem with everything that led up to adultery. All the things that might go in the heart that would cause adultery. But Jesus said, even the lust in your heart is condemned by God. Start with the heart. Pharisees had a major problem with this. In Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 23 and verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside of it may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They wanted the outside to look good, but they didn't worry about the inside. If our righteousness is going to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, we have to start with the heart. And the outside will become clean. And finally if our righteousness is going to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees, we've got to obey God's full intent. When we look at that section from Matthew five twenty one down to verse 48, Jesus gives a series of, You have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit murder, and that those who commit murder shall be guilty before the court. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother you good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. You see what happened here? They reduced the statement. Jesus didn't have a problem with those statements. In fact, as far as what Jesus says you heard, but I say to you with one exception, he didn't have a problem with any of those statements. Are we allowed to commit murder? No. If we commit murder, are we going to be liable to the court? Absolutely. Either you heard or said, don't commit adultery. Are we allowed to commit adultery? No? Yeah, of course not. He talked about the statement that if you're going to divorce your spouse, give them a a writing of divorcement. If we're going to divorce our spouse, there has to be some legal documentation. Jesus doesn't have a problem with that statement by itself. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that came directly from the law. Governments are supposed to enact a punishment that fits the crime. Jesus doesn't have a problem with those statements. Are we supposed to keep our vows to the Lord? Of course we are. Jesus' problem was not with the statements themselves, but how they had been reduced by the Pharisees and scribes down to just the bare minimum. They said, don't commit murder. And I hated his guts, but I didn't kill him. You see, they didn't understand, or let me back up, they didn't follow God's full intent. I can do anything I want, as long as I don't kill him. And then even if I kill him, I'm only going to be liable to the court. Jesus points out, if you hate your brother, not only will you be liable to man's court, but you will be liable to God's court. If you lust after someone. So they said, oh, I didn't commit adultery. He said, if you lust after them in your heart, you've committed adultery there. They missed the intent. You've heard that it was said whoever puts his wife away give her a writing of divorce and he said look if you put your spouse away you're causing her to commit adultery. Unless she had already committed immorality. Don't make false vows but keep your vows Lord. Jesus said look you do what you say no matter what. Whether you say this is to the Lord or whether you say this is to Jerusalem whether all you say is yes or no you keep your word doesn't have to be with a certain formula. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Jesus said, look, that is not about your individual life and seeking vengeance. In fact, you bend over backwards not to take advantage of other people and not to seek revenge on them. The Pharisees thought that since the command said, love your neighbors, it meant they were allowed to hate their enemies. But Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, follow the full intent. And this is important because I'll tell you, there are people today who are following in the Pharisees' mindset. The idea, how often do we hear folks say, look, I'm allowed to drink what I want as long as I don't get drunk because all the command said was don't get drunk. Or I'm allowed to play the lottery or I'm allowed to go to the boats or I'm allowed to get on the casino because all the Bible said was don't be covetous. Or how many people, hey, don't you talk to me about the dancing that goes on in those clubs or at the high school dances because all the Bible condemns is lasciviousness. And what are we doing? We're reducing down, drawing lines around, so allowing us to do whatever we want to do. And that's exactly what the Pharisees did. All it said was don't commit murder. I didn't murder. If we want to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees, as we read the sermon, everything we do, we don't do it because we want to be glorified and we want to look good. We do it because we want God to be glorified. We do it because we're going to start with our heart. The sermon is going to impact our attitude before it impacts our action. And we do it because we want to obey God's full intent. We're not going to argue over drawing lines and figuring out how close to the line we can get. We want to be more like Jesus Christ. And so that's how we study the sermon. If we want to enter the kingdom of heaven, our righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. And the fourth key. If we want to live this sermon, then we have to treat others the way they want to be treated, the way we want to be treated ourselves. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. This is perhaps the most well-known statement in the Sermon on the Mount, even if folks don't have any idea where it came from. Dan King was talking in our group meeting last night about having a congressperson, I don't remember her name, but Stated this, then stated it wrongly, but then they couldn't remember where it came from. And on some radio show they were talking about it and they were going back and forth. Ah, I think it came from religion somewhere. Maybe it was a law for the Jews. I don't know. But they know this law. They know the golden rule treat others the way we want to be treated. But despite how well we know it, it's one of the most troubling passages for folks who comment on it because it begins with, therefore. Now we realize that therefore is one of those connectors, and we wonder, what's it there for? Because therefore causes us to look back, and we're trying to figure out what's it connected to. And so you go to commentators, and they're going to say, well, it's connected to that statement right before it about how God is a loving Father, therefore we ought to be loving. And others will say, no, actually it goes back to earlier in the chapter where it talks about how we judge others. You know, we need to treat them the way we want to be treated. I don't think either of those is exactly correct. I think that Jesus is getting down to his summation and saying, all right, here's the takeaway. Here's the pragmatic rule of thumb. All of these things that we've said all the way along, if you want to do these right, here's what you do. Treat others the way you want to be treated. You want to be properly poor in spirit? Treat others the way you want to be treated. Mourning, gentle. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Merciful, peacemaker, pure in heart? You want to do all that? Treat others the way you want to be treated. You want to shine the light? Treat others the way you want to be treated. Because don't you want people to shine the gospel light for you so that you know how to live? What about that anger thing in 521? I know I'm not allowed to murder, but Jesus said there's a whole lot more. If you want to follow that one, treat others the way you want to be treated. The lusting thing? Guys, you want other men looking at your wife lusting after her? Then don't look at their wives lusting after them. What about honesty? You want people to be honest to you? People say they're going to do something, you want them to be committed to it? Or do you want folks to say, well now wait a minute, I had my fingers crossed behind my back. Then be honest. Do you see the point as we go along? That turning the other cheek, that one's a tough one. I'm not sure everything that it means, but I know this, that if I treat others the way I want to be treated, I'll be obeying that. How do I want folks to treat me when I have messed up? When I have offended them, or injured them, or insulted them? I want them to give me the benefit of the doubt. I want them to come to me and let me know, and let me make correction. I don't want them hitting me back. I need to do the same. See, the reality is this is the summation. If you want to live this sermon, treat others the way you want to be treated. Give them the same respect and kindness, give them the same consideration that you want them to give to you. Jesus drives it home with the practical takeaway. Here's the sermon we hear on Sunday. How do I live it on Monday? Everything we read in the sermon can be filtered through this. Treat others the way you want to be treated. Now make sure, of course, that the way you want to be treated is based upon the Word of God. But this is the key. This is what the sermon is all about. And what a great sermon it is. We're going to study this sermon all month long and it's going to take us all over the place. We're going to learn all kinds of things about our lives as Christians and about the character of Jesus Christ and about how we follow in the character of Jesus Christ. But these four things should govern the whole deal. If I want a stable life, I need to found it on Jesus' words. If I want true blessedness, and joy, I need to walk in Jesus' way. If I want to enter the kingdom of heaven, my righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. And if I want to live this sermon, I need to treat others the way I want to be treated. That's the sermon in a nutshell.